and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester-Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, we're going to share an early episode. This was episode number one from February of 2019 with Marty Kagan. Marty Kagan's newest book, Empowered, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Products, was recently released, and we thought it would be a good time to go back and share an early episode where we had interviewed him. Next week, Marty is going to be on the podcast sharing a conversation about the new book, Empowered. In the meantime, we thought you'd enjoy this episode. I'm super excited to have you on today, Marty. Um, why don't we start with a little bit of a background for anybody who doesn't know where you came from or how you got here or what you're doing today? Can you give us a, a short intro? Well, sure. The name is Marty Kagan again, and I uh, founded about 15 years ago now, founded the Silicon Valley Product Group, uh, which is just a small little, uh, there's just four of us, and we mostly invest and advise startups and growth stage companies. Um, before that, all four of us were senior execs, uh, product execs at major product companies. I was the original head of product and design at eBay. And before that, I ran the platform and tools part of Netscape. And for that, an engineer really for a decade at HP Labs. And my partners kind of have similar backgrounds. So uh, we mainly just get to work with a lot of companies and um, share best practices when we see them. Fantastic. And um, it, 15 years in, there's uh, so much that you've seen that, that a lot of our listeners will be interested to hear about. But um, if I could for a minute bring you back a little bit earlier, um, I think it's always good to share stories about how people got to where they are today so others can um, think about their own paths. So can you tell me a little bit more? I think I remember hearing some stories about uh, your time at HP and how you got into product, but I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Well, sure. It's an, it's an old story in the sense that uh, lots of people got into product, I think, for the similar reason. But I, uh, I mentioned that my first decade of my career was as an engineer, uh, which, which I love. Don't get me wrong. It was a great, and HP at the time, was, it was in their prime, and it was a fantastic place to learn how to be an engineer and learn the craft of software products. And I loved it. But I uh, also, like a lot of engineers, was frustrated with the product people I met. Um, and um, after one particularly uh, frustrating product, which back then products took like one to two years, and this was this was over an 18-month effort. And after one particularly frustrating one where the product really didn't, it was, it was very impressive technically, but there really was no market for this product. And it, it, was, it was the example that kind of forced me to consider this question of how do we actually decide what to build? Who decides what to build, you know, and how do they do that? Uh, and I learned really uh, at that point is when I kind of, learned and made myself learn more about the product role. And I realized that, that really that was even harder part of the problem. You know, those are really the two parts of the problem, figuring out what to build and then building it well. And um, so I, 
I didn't stop the engineering side for several years. I continued to do both, but uh, but I really became a student of the other side, and I still work a lot with engineers. So it's not that I don't do that. It's just that I find that there's a lot of, I think, really good thinkers about engineering and really good thinkers about design, but not a lot people focus on the product role. And so I have found myself spending more of my time on the product role over the years because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. A story that a lot of people have been through some form of, but uh, I find with the people I talk to today, maybe not in the same context because they're just entered the industry in the last five years. Um, I'm curious, who were you learning from back then or how did you find and figure out um, what a good product person was like? Well, that's where I was uh, really fortunate because HP back then, and it was... Uh, a much this is over a hundred thousand employee company back then it was massive compared to what it is today uh, and they were famous for their mentoring and coaching and management, especially engineering management training uh, and there was a guy there who had spawned four successful product divisions and they would generally spin off a product division at roughly a hundred million dollars revenue and this guy had done four of those so today wow. he would have been known as a, a major serial entrepreneur but um he what my manager i when i said you know i really want to learn this it seems like we don't do it very well and this guy's awesome and my manager actually um, arranged for this guy his name was mike bacco to um to coach me in product even though uh, i was actually he was in colorado and i was in california um but he coached me and uh really mentored me over over at least two years of time um and i uh, you know forever grateful that's the kind of thing and i honestly i find that a lot of people their their real learning happened because they had the chance to work under the direction of somebody who'd been there done that and, and that yep. was the advantage that i got from him yeah, absolutely. I know you've um, mentioned in some of your writing before that uh, one of the best ways to learn is to find someone who's been there and, and uh, get them to you know work with you. I think yeah. that's very valuable. Like these days, I think back to the apprenticeship models that used to be the norm and it seems like that's really what works in product. It is. In fact, I, one of the things I really struggle with in our industry is so many product people I meet are very high potential people. I mean, there's sort of a natural selection there. There's, they're usually high potential people, but so many of them have never once in their career seen good. They have never actually seen product done well. And their manager has never seen product done well. And so they, um, you get a lot of this blind leading the blind in our industry. You do. It's something that for me was a surprise because I was, uh, I would say I was fortunate to uh, have been in a growing organization where product was was pretty strong. And when I started to meet more companies and talk to more people outside, I, I was surprised by how many people had just uh, only had stories to tell that that didn't look like that. Um, exactly. And you know, it brings you to the question of um, how do you know? Uh, if you have been a part of, or if you haven't seen good. Um, I think a lot of people 
it's probably easier to know if you've seen good, you know, you feel it, it's there, kind of the way that uh, Mark Andreessen talks about product market fit. It's like, you know it when it's happening. But how do you know if you don't have a good product uh, team? And the, how do you know that the team you're working on isn't, isn't quite there and you should find some more resources? Yeah, well, uh, and it's true because a lot of people I meet, they think they're, that's it. They think that's the only way. Everybody must have the same frustrations uh, and struggles. So it's, it's one of those, they don't know what they don't know often. It is one of those things, like you said, if you have seen good, I feel like you, you're pretty clear on that. And the, re- the thing about good is the results are usually pretty clear. Um, if you're working at a company with a proven track record of consistently doing product well, like, like Netflix and like Amazon, then, then that's pretty easy to know. Um, or if your manager, for example, came from one of those companies, those are the kinds of things that uh, are good clues for you. But uh, to the scenario where you've just worked in some, you know, let's say bank or something for years and, and you, have, you just think this is it, um, then, uh, yeah, that's hard. I mean, if you do follow books and blogs, you probably have already started to have this sense that there may be other ways to do things, even if you haven't seen it. Hopefully you have, uh, you know, you believe there are, there may be better ways. And then you start that journey that many people go on to find that that might be, uh, that might be changing companies. It might be finding a mentor. It might be going to some serious training, um, but one way or another, but, but it's, you're really at the key. They have to know that, it can and should be better. Yeah. One thing that, that I think about is what do you see as the, the sort of situations that are the, the most likely false positives where somebody thinks that they have a, um, a good product culture or they're on a good product team, but actually they're mistaken. And to sort of help you um, color that, one, one thing that comes to mind for me is I've worked with some teams or seen some teams where, you know, they're growing and they're raising money and uh, maybe they, they think it, things are going well. But actually, when I, when I look at what's happening, um, you know, they're pouring the money into sales and marketing, but it's not coming from, from true organic, you know, product love. Um, what, are, what are some situations like that that you commonly see that you think people should be wary of and maybe give themselves a second uh, reflection if they're in? Yeah, and I, I have to say I don't see it so much that scenario. Normally, for example, the board of directors, if they're pouring money in, and I again, this may be a little bit of Silicon Valley bias. I do think the investors are more savvy in general in Silicon Valley. There are some great ones now in New York and mm-hmm. London and other places, but they're they're not as common. So the, the investors are usually look look at the numbers here. You are yes, you're throwing money into sales and marketing, but we are not seeing the uh, the uh, sales cycle go down. We're not seeing our efficiencies kick in. We're not seeing mm-hmm. the actual churn rate go down. So they they know enough to to sort of point out that while you might be spending money, that is not the same as uh, uh, really improving the business or the product. So, you know, there is a much better uh, overall appreciation for the analytics that drive a company. And Mm -hmm. so 
at least with the companies I'm with, they seem to know that they're not doing well. It's not like they're under mm -hmm. illusion. Uh, there are whole discussions that happen because uh, I'm, I'm one of those people that, that gets nervous when there's too much money around mm -hmm. uh, just because of the behaviors I see. But that's really a different, right? That's not, uh, that's not the same topic. It's yeah. Well, um, I actually think what you just said seems pretty likely because the ones that I can think of where I've seen that, you know, they are in New York and uh, there's a lot of money in New York that's from more traditional businesses, um, you know, trying to, to get into tech and they're not as uh, savvy yet as the, as the Silicon Valley investors. So that might be a, a unique ecosystem thing. But tell me more about the ones where there's too much money. What, what are the challenges and the, 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 um, struggles that come up then that, that make you pause when you see that? Well, there's sort of two, two fronts I see it. One is companies that try to grow too fast. Um, and, you know, growth, growing, growing product organization, technology, uh, sales. This is, you know, super hard. Uh, I, a lot of people argue that it's even harder than getting to product market fit. Um, and I would agree in some cases it is, it is even harder. There's a, a, a phrase I've heard for years, which is called surviving success. Um, yep. and it, so I will tell you there are a lot of that. For the first 10 years, really, of uh, my work advising uh, companies, it was really with startups, and it was all about getting the product market fit. But over the last five-plus years, I've spent at least as much time on growth stage challenges. So there are a lot of issues that come with growing. Um, it's not that hard to get one or two or three teams working well. Getting 10, 20, 30 product teams working well together is a lot harder. So there is uh, that dimension. If they try to grow too quickly, do they change? First of all, do they have the leaders in place? A lot of people don't realize that there's a lot more demands on the leaders if you grow, and a lot of them don't have those leaders in place. So they just get this uh, problem of or the A's hire A's and B's hire C's kind of thing. Uh, that shows up a lot and in, if they have too much money and they grow too fast. Uh, and then the other one is uh, this gets more to psychology, which is really beyond my pay grade, but I can't help but notice that teams do better with real constraints. And some of the, sometimes when there's so much money around, they feel like, uh, you know, they can solve this just by throwing money at it. You, you actually mentioned one of the classic ones where you have a product that's not doing well. So you just spend like crazy in sales and marketing, um, which sort of creates a uh, bump, of course. But usually if the, if the underlying product is not healthy, it just crushes that product. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's actually an element that I'm uh, is a, a passion for me as well because um, my first time as a real product manager um, was working at a high growth startup at MediaMath. When I joined, they were 140 people, and I don't know, we had a handful of product managers. It was the biggest product team I'd ever worked on at the time because I'd only done startups before that, like less than 10 people startups. But during my time there, it grew to 850 people and, um, you know, a dozen or more product managers. And they started to, to struggle with a lot of those challenges that you mentioned. And I remember, you know, when I decided it was time to, to see what else was out there, 
asking some of those questions, like how, how do the teams I'm looking at put their leaders in place and, and who's the right leader for this team? And what does that mean? How do you work across teams? Um, so what do you do with the companies that you work with, um, particularly as it comes to leaders? I'm curious because, you know, it can be so, it can be really tough for business leaders to make decisions that are right for the business, but don't necessarily feel good emotionally. Uh, when a company is changing a lot and the leadership needs something they don't have, um, how do you approach that? Well, that is where I spend a lot of my time with the leaders. And, and I recently I started emphasizing the distinction, too, between the leaders and the managers, um, because I have to spend time with both. Uh, and they're, even though they're often the same people, the responsibilities are very different for each of those. So, um, well, like we were saying, if it's a startup, most, I mean, startups, I don't want to make it sound easy. You know this firsthand. They're not easy, but they are, um, there are a lot more things that are straightforward. Like we know what we're here to do. Uh, it's, it's not that hard for everybody to be on the same page. But in growth stage, that becomes very hard, actually, to make sure that, let's say you have 15 product teams, you know, on the order of about, you know, 30, 40, 50 engineers. And that's now a lot harder to keep them all going in the same direction. And so I have to work with the leaders on really articulating the vision and the strategy. I also have to work because now you need to coordinate. You've got maybe 15 product managers and 10 or so designers, and you've got all these engineers, and you need to make sure that they are all contributing to a much larger whole. And that requires very active management. Uh, and that's actually, if I had to pick one area, it's the people managers, especially the people managers of product managers, designers, and engineers that are often where things fall apart first. If those people aren't strong, then you end up with, uh, well, well, as you know, product teams are really only as good as their product manager. Um, and so who, the person responsible for making sure you have capable product managers for each of the teams is that director of product management. And so we have to make sure that that person is actually doing that, uh, hiring the right people, coaching them to competence, uh, and making sure the teams are doing what they need to do. That's that takes very active management. Um, this is sort of always, nothing I just said is really new. I'd say that one of the things that has changed, though, is Agile, which is I'm a big advocate for, don't get me wrong, but Agile left the misconception in a lot of people's minds that management needs to just back off mm -hmm. and, and chill out. And that couldn't really be more wrong. And I tell people, it's not that you need less management with Agile, you need better management with Agile. Mm -hmm. And so I do spend a lot of my time uh, with the managers on that is helping them become a strong, actual people manager. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's something that I sort of have always felt in the tech industry um, you know, especially working with engineers, there's kind of a cultural bias of, you know, we don't need managers. Managers are just extra. Um, so I'm curious if, uh, if you encounter that and how you sort of help them uh, see the value in, in what that is. Well, uh, I, first of all, that is a common conception. Uh, and 
they usually can convince themselves otherwise on their own. You know, mm-hmm. not, not many people know this, but early in Google's life, they thought, who the hell needs managers? We have some of the most capable engineers in the world. We'll just, and they literally made a choice to, um, to get rid of people managers. So, and they, they, uh, they offered their people managers the uh, opportunity to be, just be engineers again. <laughs> and they did that and it was a nightmare and they had very visibly and uh, well, they were still small then, but they had to unwind from all that and reintroduce management. They learned it themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and that's with very strong talent. It's not about that. It's just that it's not such a big deal, again, when you're really small. But as you grow, it becomes a very significant issue. I will mention, Holly, just a fun example of this. There's a movie that just came out that is called, um, well, what is it called? It's the General Magic story. I forget the actual title. But it tells the story of General Magic, which, if you've never heard of, is like the most amazing text company that nobody's ever heard of. Um, they had done this amazing product right before the internet, and the internet basically made the whole thing obsolete right away. But anyway, this feature film was done just recently to uh, to tell that story, and you can see that um, they had a couple of the best engineers in the world right out of early engineers from Apple that were the co-founders and they had that belief that we really don't need managers. And you could just see in the movie how that plays out. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I'll definitely have to look that up. I had not heard the story of General Magic, but I always love a good story about you know a company growing and products being built. So that sounds great. Yeah, I've definitely, uh, throughout my relatively shorter career, I've already seen plenty of, of companies and teams uh, attempt to get rid of management and then feel the, the pains. And uh, sometimes I work with people who are just rising into management and they themselves aren't sure about the value of what they're doing now and help them see that um, you know you have to start measuring your success differently. It's not about how many documents you put out or lines of code you commit. It's about whether everyone on your team is working well and they understand the goals and the vision and all of that communication is real work. One of the things I do use is to, to point out to people is that for my, uh, for especially the first 10 years of my career and, and in fairness, HP prided itself on this every single day of those 10 years, I had a manager, a people manager that was, Sorry. Uh, Hi, doggy. <laughs> yeah, two dogs. Um, oh. I had a people. I had a manager every single day over those ten years that was worried about helping me become competent at my job and then get ready for the next level job. So there was always someone there to coach me. And I thought that was just normal. I thought everybody had that. And largely they did, at least in the organizations I was in. But then when I left HP uh, and went out into the broader world, I realized how often that is not true. And I argue to teams that that is exactly what they, this is what the managers need to do is they need to make sure that everybody on their team has somebody helping them become competent. Mm-hmm. Uh, since you had that experience back then and, and you work with a lot of companies now, I'm curious, what do you see in the, you know, especially out in the Silicon Valley world in terms of how much companies are investing in, in that coaching, that teaching, that development of 
their people's careers to the next level. Do you think it's where it needs to be? Is it, are there pockets of good or is it, you know, what does it look like? Well, overall, I'd say it looks terrible. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and, and that's what's showing. Uh, I do think, like I said, part of that is unintentional. Part of it is agile, uh, created this misunderstanding. And part of it is just rapid growth. And it's, you know, companies can and do grow faster than they ever did. If you get that, you get on that curve, it, it can be a wild ride. But I am... Um, I spend a lot of time trying to encourage them to focus on that, that that is the key to successful growth. There are pockets of good, for example. I have seen uh, terrific people managers and, and coaching going on at teams at Google, at teams at Netflix. Uh, there, so there's definitely good out there. But most, I think this is an area that is definitely uh, a problem. Yeah, Um it's absolutely a problem here in the New York ecosystem, and uh, and I, you know, I hope that it's at least more evolved out in, in Silicon Valley. But um, you know, as the tech ecosystem here is growing, you know, I'm amazed at how many people I bump into and talk to um, who are in the industry and are talking about you know product management things in the coffee shop. Like that didn't used to be a norm in New York, but um, but I've also noticed that I don't know if it's just the my particular anecdotes or if it's real, but I feel like the general quality level of like how much people are at and what they know about it is there's, it, it feels lower. And I think it's just because there's so many and where could they have come from? They have to have come from being new to join the field. Um, but we really have to help everybody learn uh, how to do this well. I, yeah, this is, um, this is a real problem. Well, first of all, I would emphasize it's a problem in Silicon Valley, so I don't want to make it sound. But in Silicon Valley, I think we have a longer history of good companies that uh, are feeding the, the market. In places like New York and London, most, you know, it is getting a lot better. I want to be careful with what I'm about to say. But a lot of the actual uh, talent came from the financial services industry and mm -hmm. and thankfully when they had such a disaster a decade ago it freed up a lot of talent the problem is the financial services industry is is demonstrably not good at what we're talking about and so yes. those people were sort of fed in and hired by all these companies and many of them had never, you know, again, no coaching, never seen good. They thought the way things work is the way it works at a you know, big bank. And so it, it hindered the, in those areas. Now, I feel like we've turned the, cur the corner in both New York and, and uh, London several mm -hmm. years ago. And now there's a lot of, in fact, several of the teams that I meet indistinguishable from the best teams anywhere in the world. So it's not like I'm not trying to paint it as a, a you know, desert or anything mm -hmm. like that. It's just that that took a little while to get yeah. over because so many people were coming from uh, really the opposite of what we would consider good. Yeah. As a diehard New York tech person, I feel like no, uh, you know, no upset about you saying that because I, I think it's true. And um, I think that we're, we're growing as a community and we're getting stronger and we're helping people see what good is and, uh, you know, we'll get there. But it's, 
it's a different dynamic because people, uh, a lot of the people in the industry here, you know, were in finance first um, because that was where the money was and where, where you went if you had a lot of ability to earn. So, uh, but I, I'm, I'm excited to be a part of this community now because it has a lot of diversity in, in thought and in connection to different industries. And uh, you can still, you know, meet a lot of people in your day-to-day life that are doing other things. And I think that's a good breeding ground for innovation and different thought and things like that. So I do too. Uh, and I, I'm in New York and London several times a year because of that. It's just mm-hmm. really turned into a great place. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about some of the sort of, um, you know, product management, product leadership specifics. Um, I think I remember uh, hearing you once say that roadmaps are uh, product management's opioid crisis. (laughs) Tell me a little more about that. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, roadmaps, first of all, I should be clear because there are some exceptions to this, fortunately, Uh, just they're rare, unfortunately, but uh, most roadmaps that I'm talking about are the classic prioritized list of features and projects. And the, and of course the, the reason companies are so addicted to these is simple. They want to know that the teams are working on the most important things. And they also want to know when things are going to happen. Uh, and so they, that, those are pretty basic needs. And uh, I, I also think those are fair needs, but the reason it's such a problem is because in, in, in virtually every company, when you have a document with the string roadmap on it, then everybody thinks those features and projects are commitments. And the problem with that is that no matter how smart you are, um, Harvard Business Review did a story recently where they highlighted a couple organizations, including a strong team at Microsoft where they admitted that the truth is only about 10% of the things on our roadmap actually pan out. Uh, And that's the reality is that most of our things that we think are going to be awesome are not awesome. And if you put it on a roadmap though, you're kind of, you know, locked and loaded and committed to doing that. Even though we, we often can figure out in just days that that's going to be a big waste of time. And so we want to, focus not on the features and projects. We want to focus on the problems to solve and then let the teams figure out and be held accountable to uh, solving those problems. And so roadmaps kind of get in the way of that. And fortunately, there's good alternatives to the roadmap, but still companies are are addicted to them. And uh, I struggle with that with a lot of different companies. Yeah, um, I see that too. And it's something that um, I tried to spearhead some initiatives on when I was in-house at some companies um, to to try to help the company move to a better way of doing it. And I was um, somewhat surprised by how challenging it was. Um, I mean, I literally went to people with like your articles on alternatives to roadmaps and OKRs and, you know, what is the, the inconvenient truth about product? And, um, and I was like, these are truths. You know, we, we know that we don't know what we're, what we're doing. We know it, we don't know how long it's going to take to build something. And, um, you know, I had managers say to me, um, well, I, I believe in our tech team. I believe that they can tell us what they're going to get done. And 
um, you know, it sounds like you don't trust them. And I was yeah. like, that's not the story. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, this, I started talking about this more explicitly recently because what, what it really gets down to, and by the way, you're going to see that financial services legacy thing come into play again in a bank the purpose of the tech teams the whole reason they're there are really to serve the business and that's their job that's why they're hired that's also they they often just outsource the thing but they're there to serve the business and the different parts of the business like you know consumer banking or whatever they decide what's going to be done and in that model Roadmaps are kind of, are not only common, but they are they really are an enabler of the way they want to work. And I also tell people you can have somebody called a product manager, but don't fool yourselves. That's not a product manager in that model. Uh, but in a true tech company, uh, I'm talking about the Amazons, the Apples, the Googles, the Netflix. In those companies, the role of the tech teams is different. It's actually to solve our customers' problems, not the needs of the business, but in ways that the customers love and that work for the business. And that's a very different um, charter. That's a very different purpose. And it, that's where we need product managers, um, in, in truth. That's where we need product managers. If it's that we're there to serve the business, Frankly, all you really need is a product owner. You just need somebody to, to convert the roadmap into a backlog and get to work. And so that's a little harsh, but it, it's really true. Uh, and so that's where this comes from. It really does. Now, one of the reasons I like OKRs when they're used well, they are really designed to be the alternative to this. It's, it's meant to be an empowering tool a tool for empowerment. Instead of giving a team a bunch of features to build, you give them problems to solve. Those are the mm -hmm. objectives. And the team is supposed to be in the best position to figure out the best way to solve that. So tell me more about um, uh, a good implementation of OKRs. Because um, I think I've, I've you know, talked with some other you know, product leaders and people who are seeing different implementations of it. And, um, and it, it's... It, see, it feels, at least, you know, in my ecosystem, like it's early days and a lot of people are, are not doing it according to principles. They're doing it according to, you know, some following some structured rule that they think is going to make it work. Um, so what do you what do you see? Um, tell me a story about a place where it was great and, well, and what that looked so like. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the truth is in most organizations that do OKRs that I see, it's a mess, just a complete mess. And I... I think I understand why that's the case. OKRs in concept, of course, are simple, right? They are not complicated. Um, <laughs> we have qualitative objectives and we have quantitative key results. And the idea is to give teams problems to solve and let them be accountable to the actual results. The reason it's so hard and so ugly in so many organizations is because it, it forces this topic I just brought up about what the purpose of a team is, it, put, it brings it right to the front. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it shows the cultural issue that's going on. So what most companies do is they think, you know, they've heard they need OKRs because Google and Facebook and LinkedIn have been using them for a decade. They think they need them. But then they try to impose them in their company that still uses roadmaps and still is driven by the business. 
And so that uh, what you get is a complete sort of disconnect that shows up with frustration across the board. Uh, it really doesn't make sense to do both of those, uh, which, but that is what so many companies try to do. Uh, it's, you know, they try to do some mashup of some principles from OKRs, but still addicted to that old way of working. Mm-hmm. So it's OKRs is straightforward to do if you've already made that cultural change to what, what I'm talking about here, truly mm-hmm. empowered teams. But if you haven't made that, you just it's just a layer on top of everything else, which is going to struggle. So I think that's what you're really seeing. But in a good organization, uh, we have objectives. They might, they usually, for a small or to a medium-sized company, they usually come from the board of directors in annual. They have a the CEO has a annual set of uh, business objectives around, you know, growing the business or you know, introducing more product lines or whatever it might be. And then the the leaders and managers of product design and engineering translate those um, company objectives into objectives for each product team. And then the product team. So let's say you're the uh, let's say you're an early Uber and you are a driver product team. You're responsible for the apps for the drivers. Then your job is to uh, and and the managers give you the objectives around what you need to do to help the drivers this year. Maybe you need more drivers, maybe you need happier drivers, whatever. And then the driver team goes to work and says, well, how can we actually, what can we do this quarter to help that? And they invest, they, they look into that. As you know, I call that discovery. They look into that and they say, well, we can do this. We can get a 20% boost this quarter. And so they commit to their key results, this 20% improvement on this uh, KPI, and, uh, and they get to work. And they, they, they probably have lots of ideas, and uh, almost certainly they do, but almost certainly most of those ideas won't work, but that's fine. They try them quickly and they figure out the ones that will work, and the good teams actually yeah, they solve those objectives and uh, declare victory on that in the quarter, and they have a new set of problems next quarter. One of the things in there that I love about that um, is that because they didn't write up that roadmap when they try those things and, and most of them fail, they don't have that overhead of, of going back to somebody and saying, hey, by the way, here's the learnings I had where these things failed and we have to do something else. Yeah, um, you but know, overhead just- makes it sound too minor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it really is because at this point, I mean, imagine if they did have that roadmap and they've got marketing programs that have been baked in and sales programs that are baked in and 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 they've all already been talking to customers about this solution. At this point, it is really hard to change that. Um, And many of them. Well, then then, now they have a, a terrible situation. Do they? go forward anyway, even though they don't think it's going to work and they have strong evidence it's not going to work? Or do they, you know, try to ask for a mulligan and say, you know, we messed up on this. We need to change all this. And, you know, nobody's happy in this scenario. Yeah. So how do you recommend that product managers work with their counterparts in in marketing and sales when they're in this OKR system um, and, the, and the marketing and sales are coming in saying, well, how am I going to prepare for a, a launch if, you know, I don't have a roadmap? 
Well, so we do need, first of all, this is why you need a competent product manager because all this kind of falls apart without that. So we need a product manager that deeply understands the go-to-market strategy, understands the capabilities of the sales organization, the different marketing programs that we have, uh, as well as finance and security and privacy and biz dev, all these different stakeholders. So if they don't understand this, then those parts of the business, there's nobody they can trust there. Uh, and so they will, um, you know, they will revert to uh, trying to take control again. So this is everything I'm about to say is really predicated on having a competent product manager. But the product manager in discovery is figuring out if they've got a solution that works for those parts of the business, which usually involves them showing those showing the head of marketing prototypes and saying, okay, we think this will work. Will this work with your marketing programs? Let's make sure this is a solution that works for both of us. And once we get to a solution that works well for our customers and works well for our business uh, and is something we can build ourselves, technically feasible, then, we, then we'll commit. Then we have no problem making a commitment and saying, okay, here's the feature. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think uh, I personally have had, um, you know, one one major project in my career where we had that level of partnership with marketing, and um, and it's it's been my sort of gold standard ever since. It's like if we do this all together, we can make something really amazing happen. But um, but there's a lot of work involved in working across all the teams. Uh, that's totally true. You have to, to, in order to have the organization trust the product team, they really have to believe that the product team, especially the product manager, is competent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and competent includes really understanding their constraints and considerations. So that's why I think we even started this discussion with um, you really need to make sure that you're you know, the product teams are only as good as the product managers. You have to make sure your product managers are, have done their homework and are competent. Yeah. So we need more good product managers to fuel, you know, the modern economy. <laughs> um, I, I would argue we absolutely do. And the people we hold accountable for that are the managers of product managers. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I was I was recently reviewing uh, what you had said about that in um, in your most recent uh, book in Inspired V2, um, and I'm curious to hear uh, what are some things about what makes a great leader of product management that really crystallized in the past uh, couple of years that you know you had to put into the new book that you didn't have when you wrote the first one. Um, what's the the most recent developments about what is great for a leader of product management? Well, I think what happened, again, this was just my theory to explain uh, what I think are the facts there, where um, it it seems clear to me that over, say, there was 10 years between V1 and V2, and over those 10 years, the main thing that happened was Agile became a lot more popular, uh, which is something I advocated for in the first edition, but that happened. But one of the unintended consequences, again, is my theory, is that uh, is that there was a de-emphasis on people management, and that that really created a bigger, a, a major problem. And so I I tried to dial that way up in V2 and talk a lot more about this. One of the best product minds I think in the world is Ben Horowitz. 
Uh, and he likes to argue that the single most important non-C-level position in a company is actually these directors of product management. And his argument is it's because the people that are going to build their products, which is what the whole company is based on, are these product teams, and they are only as good as the product managers. So the, these directors of product is who we have to hold accountable for strong product managers. That's this, it's just the same argument. Do you see that the the treatment of that talent matches that importance? Uh, you know, are they are they getting the same compensation and respect and things like that? Um, you know, out in the Silicon Valley ecosystem, as uh, to match that influence that they have? Uh, well, I would argue so. The product managers that are good and that deliver, they are they are kind of the rock stars of the industry and those people are getting, and, and you know, it's uh, this is not really much of a secret, but the single best path to a startup CEO today is through product management. It is that proving ground um, for, for future leaders. So I would argue absolutely the prize is big. If, if the product manager is strong, they have, uh, I mean, it's one of the best careers in our industry, and it certainly is very rewarding career. But it's also uh, because it's a proving ground. There are a lot of former product managers out there, people that were really not uh, up to this. Now, in a this is going to go back to that theme where if the company is set up where the teams are really just there to serve the business, then. These people, first of all, even if they hire, if they even if they're hired, they usually leave because they're the, the this is not the real product role that we're talking about. But if they're at a company that has truly empowered product teams, then yes, that the, this person is uh, is it's a very visible position, but it's also a highly rewarded position. Yeah, all the uh, all the pros and cons that come with that, right? Exactly. I've I've been amazed myself at as I've progressed uh, how many people I've known who've decided to go another way and um, you know I always thought wow it's like the most amazing role why wouldn't you want to just do that but um, but you know sometimes uh, people find it's not for them <laughs> oh no it's and I'm, I try to be honest it's I think it is absolutely the hardest role on a team and. And it's not that uh, I'm not saying, in fact, you don't have a successful product unless all the roles deliver what you need them to deliver. It's just that this role is one of those brutal roles. It takes more hours, I think, than any other role. And, and it's just very unforgiving that way. Yeah, definitely. So um, this has been a really fantastic conversation. I would love to just like, keep talking forever. But um probably should wrap it up. So what do you think are um, maybe some final uh, final thoughts? I think the question I was thinking about is um, if you <laughs> if you had a magic wand, like, um, what would you make be true about the product management community? Um, what do you think would be the biggest thing that you would want to be somewhere that it's not today? Well, I think that they have, the community has to understand that training to be a product owner does not mean that they're a product manager. That that product owner is just a very small, simple 
uh, it's the simple part, the straightforward. It's honestly, it's more the administrative part of being a product manager. They have to understand that getting CSPO certification is not a product manager. I, I, I want to be clear. I think product managers, as long as your team is using something like Scrum, then the product manager does need to learn what they need to do as product owner. Product owner, but product owner is just the role they play on an agile team. Product manager is the job they're signed up for, and so the first most important thing I think they need to understand is they it is on the product manager to make sure that they are competent to do the job. Hopefully their manager can help them with that. That's what their manager is supposed to do. But if they can't, they have to find that help somewhere else. Awesome. Well, thank you, Marty, so much for your time today and for sharing your wisdom. I, uh, I know our audience will find it valuable. I hope so. I hope it was useful. Thanks very much, Holly. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Marty Kagan as much as I did. If you'd like to find Marty online, you can follow him on Twitter at Kagan, C-A-G-A-N, or visit his company's website, svpg.com for the Silicon Valley Product Group. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you love the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.